are my expectations of what I want to do in my day-to-day and what do I achieve? Are they realistic? Could I carve that? Could I be a pioneer where I don't see examples? You know, how much can I control and change? How much can I influence where I'm working to adapt to what I'm trying to control and change? And, and where is there just a kind of force greater than all that where maybe I need to make my own adaptations? Hello, and welcome to Working Your Way, a podcast dedicated to unraveling the journey of being authentic in the workplace. I'm your host, Sandia Sadhakar, and my guest today is Jen Thompson. Jen is the Chief Brand Officer at Japanesque, a beauty and wellness company with a portfolio of brands that are disrupting the industry with new technology and creating new categories. Jen has had a super successful career as a brand builder at various companies, including Procter & Gamble, where we worked together and became close friends. In this episode, we talk all about how Jen's career ambitions really shifted as she assessed how she wanted to show up in all areas of her life, including when she became a mother. We talk about staying true to yourself while also stepping up your skill set in things like self-advocacy and effectively communicating your ideas. I know that you'll take away a lot from Jen's journey, so let's get into the conversation. Welcome, Jen, to Working Your Way. I'm really excited to have you on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so you are the chief brand officer of Japanesque, and that is a role not only with a huge scope, it's very impressive, um, and I'm obviously very proud of you as a friend to getting to this amazing place. And I want to talk more about how you're showing up as a leader, but let's talk a little bit about some of the earlier parts of your career and like how you got here. Mm-hmm. So I'd love to hear a little bit about what were some of the times in your career where you didn't feel like you could show up fully as yourself. I identified for the first decade of my career as a careerist, where that was the priority above all else. I put in long hours happily, you know, pre-kids, pre-getting um, married and cohabitating with loved ones. I had the time to invest in that careerist mentality. And I loved what I did and I loved the achievements that I had garnered in in the time of that first decade of my career. And then I did get married and I started a family and I still had a tremendous amount of career ambition, but I was having this kind of unarticulated tension of wanting these things in my career and wanting these things in my personal life and struggling a little bit with what was my authentic way of now juggling these two worlds. And what I specifically juggled with was still being very ambitious, but feeling less comfortable doing the things that a careerist might do to achieve career advancement. I was no longer as willing to work, you know, weekends and nights. I just to be my best human, uh, my best, you know, partner, mother to my children, even friends, as I was now juggling this, you know, extra element in the time that I had um, to spend with people. I felt that I was trying to reconcile authentic behaviors in completely different contexts instead of having a definition of my one authentic self. You know, I am someone who is ambitious, but puts family first was was effectively how I landed on Mm. what I redefined authenticity to be for me. How would you define a careerist. And where do you think that ambition came from? I think a careerist, as I kind of self-describe myself, is someone who has a little bit of extra self-worth placed within what they do for a living instead of who they are. You know, I took a lot of pride on being able to introduce myself, not as Jen with these hobbies, but Jen is this person who worked at a Fortune 50 company and had all this responsibility. And I think where it came from was a little bit of my background. I had a very hardworking entrepreneurial set of parents. They had their own small business. And as small business owners, they had to invest a lot of time in work fundamentally. They were always there for us as 
kids. I have, I'm one of three sisters, you know, they came to all our sporting events. They helped us with our science fair projects, but they integrated that into their small business life. So to me, it was very normal to have work be such a large part of your waking day. And then seeing the challenges my parents is, my parents had running a small business, I wanted the steady <laughs> paycheck. I think it's admirable what entrepreneurs do. I don't know that I'm as bold to, to take on all the challenges, right? I grew up knowing exactly what that would entail. And so I kind of wanted to work with something that had a little bit of momentum for it and then apply my little entrepreneurial spirit within it. So from a careerist standpoint, it's that, you know, your waking day is largely consumed with what you're doing for work, partly because it consumes a lot of your day and hopefully you enjoy it. It becomes a little bit of what's in your purpose in your day to day. I was not motivated by pay or status. It was really much more achievement that, you know, I had the grid and I had the hard work and my signal of that paying off for me and being worth it was that, you know, I move up and up and up and my responsibility increases. I don't think being a careerist is necessarily a bad thing. I think everything that makes you authentic is just your set of choices. But I think a little bit because of what I grew up seeing, you know, work was just kind of at an, a bit of an epicenter in terms of where I focused on, you know, what do I want my work to be? What do I want my waking day ambition to focus on from a working perspective? And then it just kind of snowballed from there, really. Many people can kind of like pick up these messages along the way, right? As our, as, as we are in our ch childhood and progress throughout college and our careers and kind of like take those things with us, right? So you saw a really hardworking set of parents mm -hmm. and you saw difficulty in building a lifestyle when you're running a small business. So like taking that message, okay, hard work. And then, okay, I'm going to add some stability into the bag with a fortune 50 company but I know you to be someone who, even at pretty young ages, was like quite intentional about things. And so I'm wondering, like, as you started your career and really put a lot of importance, having it play a, an important role in your life, which, like you said, is not a bad thing. How much of that was intentional versus this is the message that I got and I'm taking it and running with it? It was very intentional. I had kind of found my industry niche and then set the intention of, well, if I'm going to go into this industry, I want the broadest opportunities available to me for wherever I get my first job. So I was very focused on this, you know, Fortune 100 for the training, for the, you know, reputation more to unlock doors. It wasn't like a bragging right piece. It was almost a criteria of if I want the opportunities to be available to me in 10 years that maybe I want, you know, a, a high ranking executive in a, in a CPG firm, I should go to one of the companies that I keep seeing over and over again as part of these executives history. So I did a lot of research. So I, I was pretty methodical uh, with, yeah. with the planning. And even in the context of what I said, you know, triggered a bit of a reassessment of authenticity, you know, having a family, I have three children intellectually, I knew that was going to happen. I think for all the planning that you do for the college mapping and the job interviews and the roles that you try to plot once you're in a company, the thing that's less easy to anticipate is how you'll feel in the moment when you're in those seats, when you have those accomplishments, when you have those life changes. And so for all of my planning, uh, my emotional reaction to different phases I was going through in my career, in my life triggered these little moments of me rechecking in with what was authentic and how rigid should I be in all these plans I was making. Sometimes you can get too committed to a path. And if you're changing or, you know, the dynamics around you are changing, it can be a little hard to see what part needs to adjust to go forward for you to get in a better place where what you're doing and what you're feeling are, are kind of reconciled to, I don't know, just feel, feel most in your balance and what you're doing. As you went from somebody who's like, I am going to be successful in my career, like I'm going to accomplish these amazing things, and you were doing that, where did that start to shift for you from being a careerist to, to that maybe those first couple check-ins to be like, this maybe isn't working for me? I was making the transition from 
lower management levels in the organization to senior management levels in the organization. I had a little bit of a belief that meritocracy and my results would speak for themselves as I, you know, strove and continued to advance in the organization. And what I found when I got to a senior management position was there were senior management paths where, you know, if you were trying to reconcile kind of work and career, you know, you reach this kind of pinnacle S curve in your career, and then people would kind of just broaden their scope of, of working out from there where they rebalance career and family. And then there were people who continued on the the trajectory. And what I noticed, because I wanted to be on this trajectory, right? But what I noticed on this trajectory, once I was kind of in that group of senior management, I could see it behind the curtain, if you will, is these high trajectory people, they were careerists where I was seeing trade-offs that were happening in their personal life. You know, they, particularly for women, they were married but didn't have kids or they were married and they had children, but they were not as present as I wanted to be for myself. You know, again, it's all choices, right? But, you know, they were missing school events and milestones because their travel schedule was really intensive. And so as I saw those things, I just started to play back in my mind. You know, I want to strive, but I'm noticing that such and such leader, you know, to get to their position, they relocated a lot and they're in jobs where they travel 300 days out of the year. Now that I see that that's what it is, now that I'm close enough to that level Mm. to see what's happening, do I see any examples of people who are trying to work in the way that I'm trying to work, which is that I... I, I don't have like a cutoff of I start work, I end work, and then I go on to my personal life. I, I very much do integrate it. But there are periods where I need a mental window where I'm just focused on one thing. That led to a bit of introspection on are my expectations of what I want to do in my day-to-day and what do I achieve? Are they realistic? Could I carve that? Could I be a pioneer where I don't see examples? You know, how much can I control and change how much can I influence where I'm working to adapt to what I'm trying to control and train change? And, and where is there just a kind of force greater than all that where maybe I need to make my own adaptations? So that led to a literally me with my intention and my planning. Me, I had to get the thoughts out on paper and I, I had to map, you know, what, what are my career goals and, and broaden that of not just define as within the company I was, I was at 10 years from now, what do I want to? have been true of the way that I parented, of the way that I, you know, was a a spouse to my partner in the way that we were able to support each other's careers. And it just dawned on me through that exercise that where I was, what I was doing and how that organization needed an employer, a leader to take on an assignment, behave, et cetera, was just not going to fulfill what I felt was going to be the way that I work toward my next kind of like, you know, 10 year plan as, as a leader, as a spouse, as a parent. And so then I made the shifts to accommodate my husband's dual career needs with an organization that I felt would let me be the parent that I needed to be. Um, And it kind of cycled out from there. You can hear Jen's thought process in laying out this plan. Okay, I'll do this and then this to get access to a job here, and then I'll achieve this goal or role or level. And while many people lay out these types of goals, they're often for so many different reasons. I want to achieve a certain status, or I want to be the leader in an organization. For Jen, as she laid out her plan, she wanted her moves to secure a certain level of security, stability, certainty, And she wanted to create as many options as possible for her to succeed and achieve her goals. She and I have done some of this reflection together, and we get into the Enneagram and her type later in the episode. But the thing that she says here, you can lay out goals, perfect plans to get us to a certain place, but you never know how you're going to feel when you get there. And we change as humans. So when we 
lay out something at the age of 18 or 22, it's often totally out of context with where we find ourselves at the age of 30 or 35 or 40. And then we have to recalibrate. Is this what I thought I wanted? Uh, Is this still what I want? What factors have changed? And I love how she took us through her thought process of weighing all the options. I want this role and I want to be this type of mother and partner. Hmm. The equation doesn't work. And there's no one around who's making the equation work who I can ask for help or no one around that I can see at least. When we set these goals, I think it's important to ask ourselves not just what do I want, but why do I want it? Going much deeper than you might hear typically. And then asking the question that she lays out is, how do I want to feel when I get there? Do I want to feel empowered? Do I want to feel free? Do I want to feel safe? If we lay these things out, it's so much easier to identify, this is why I wanted this, and I'm not getting it, and maybe it's time to change something. And that doesn't always mean leaving the job, but maybe making adjustments within it. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. What were some of the trade-offs that you were not willing to make? I think one of them was putting all business needs first in terms of what commanded my physical time. So I am a very delegating type of leader. I build up the capability of my team so that we have collectively more bandwidth because if if we take on great challenges and we've got a really strong bench, then, you know, multiple players can come in to achieve something. And I don't have a hierarchical style either when it comes to, you know, going to some spotlight event or some crucible meeting. So I was trying in my own universe with my team that I was managing at the time where if there was a, you know, a trip that I felt someone on my team was incredibly capable of leading because I had, you know, trained them. They were very strong. They had a good relationship with the customer. I would try to send them on the trip if I had, you know, something going on where, where I needed to stay home. It it was this hierarchical norm of like, no, 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 you know, your title is X and therefore you have to go. And I was just challenging, like, why? (laughs) This person is perfectly capable and the assignments that I was looking at in the future, you know, I, I remember one conversation in particular, my responsibility had grown to a very large amount, partly because I sign up for work, which, you know, is another topic, but um, <laughs> I had a, a huge scope of responsibility um, that started the year very tumultuous. You know, half of that scope was not delivering and my job was to turn that around. And by the end of that year, I had green shoots on everything on my on my business. Um, not only that, some of those green shoots were the first green shoots, you know, brands on my portfolio had seen in eight, 10 years. And the feedback was, you know, this is phenomenal and you're such high potential and, you know, you're such an asset to this organization. And, you know, as someone who had worked, you know, two, three X the scope of my peers and delivered results, I asked the question of, you know, if I get another year like this, what what's next for me, right? Every year you have these career check-ins just to make sure that, you know, what you want in the company assessment of how you're performing to qualify for what you want. I was asking that question, wanting to make sure that I was doing everything I needed to do so that I was laying that groundwork for what the next level would be, you know, not necessarily the next day, but in, you know, 18 to 20 more months time, a pretty reasonable schedule. And the response I got was basically, regardless of how I performed, there were boxes I was going to need to check roles I was going to need to take, scope I was going to need to take to advance to a a next level. And even though qualitatively in my day-to-day, I was already starting to check those boxes, the broader machine of it all, you know, had a a more systematized way and almost like quantitative way of determining whether or not you had checked a box or not. And it was enlightening to me that there was more of an optics game than I understood less of a meritocracy than I had been trying to push for. And then I realized um, now again at this different level that, that there's a little bit of a a box checking that would require me to 
moved to places I wasn't necessarily interested in, moved to places that weren't compatible with my personal needs. And I actually appreciate the transparency because I didn't waste another, you know, five or 10 years where I was. But just those dynamics of, you know, doing kind of all the things you need to be doing and yet still needing to do more that then starts to come into conflict with your own goals and wishes, recognizing that for what it is, and then determining if you're going to do something about it and then taking action on that. It was, it was a big lesson for me that I'm, I'm glad I recognized at the moment and then took action upon. Did you see those? So the transparency is great. You were, you know, you were delivering amazing results and yet there were still these kind of barriers um, put in front of you to get to the next level. Did you see those standards being applied broadly to everybody? No. And that's where I think my authentic style probably plays a role. So I am the type to give credit to a team before credit to myself. And there tends to be, you know, a contingent in, in organizations um, that are hierarchical that kind of master the craft of self-advocacy, delegating what doesn't act as a bright, shiny penny to upper management. There's a game that definitely is played in, in large organizations where for you to kind of be the signal and the noise of talent, you need to make yourself stand out in a certain way. It was inauthentic to me to grandstand, to take pre- credit for a team's work as my individual effort, to delegate to a team that was already stretched to the hilt, you know, and ask for more and more and more why I do less and less. And I do think that those personal principles of mine did cause me to stand out less in some of those conversations. Like I can very much picture someone else in the organization, you know, versus talking about all the scope that they had done and that they had delivered green shoots across everything. Like you just heard me articulate it, right? It was like, I had all of these brands. I grew them all. Someone else might've come and said, you know, I know that part A of my work is what really matters. And I'm just going to talk about that one. (laughs) And I'm actually okay if some of these other things don't have green shoots. There's an integrity for me to be green on everything I do and and focus on it on all that. Um, and I, yeah, I, I do think that that um, played a role in kind of where, you know, certain things were rewarded and certain things weren't. I have learned to better advocate for myself. You know, I have become more able to say I in a conversation. In my authentic way, some of how I've had to do that is, when there is a crucible project that's maybe high risk, but also high reward if it's achieved, I, I, I will take on that risk versus putting my team through that risk. And then when it goes well, you know, then I did it. You know, I took on that risk and I, I delivered and, um, I, I've still, I still struggle a little bit of advocacy. I think it's, it's, uh, it's a bit of a journey for me still, but. I'm stronger than I was. And part of that was by tapping into mentors and many mentors, both male and female would comment frequently that this tends to be also a a female problem. And so I also did see a, you know, a lot of men were advancing and I, I don't want to necessarily say that, you know, there was a deserving, not deserving component. I think that there was definitely though a self-advocacy component. And again, you know, I'm one of the, 16% of women working, married with kids, there's also just a a level of balancing and, um, you know, time sacrifice that, you know, I I have disproportionately that, that people in kind of my demographic have disproportionately that I've had to learn over years how to navigate better because I, I took for granted for a while that there was a little bit more parity than than there really is in reality. So this is one of those places where the idea of authenticity can get a little sticky. But I'm not someone who brags about my accomplishments or needs a lot of credit or glory. Like, I just want my work to speak for itself. I think there's definitely a lot of area in between grandstanding or bragging and expecting people to read our minds to know exactly what we're doing and how we're contributing. Where's the space between those two extremes that feels authentic to you? 
And we get to question here, is this kind of resistance to self-advocacy or self-promoting? Is this my true nature or is this decades of ingrained expectations and societal norms that, that tells me, or in Jen's case, tells her women support others and they don't stand out and, and that's shameful. Or maybe you grew up in a family that repeatedly talked about being humble and valued being humble and that being humble makes you a good person. These things all impact your beliefs around things like self-advocacy. So it's important to sort out what is the true me and what are some maybe old beliefs or things I absorbed along the way and things that I can leave behind. We get into this more later in the episode and how this is really shifting for her and why. It's really hard to imagine a reality when there's no representation of it. And mm-hmm. like for you as, you know, a mother of three, married, you know, kind of being a very important part of, of the money that your family's bringing in, like not seeing that, it's like, oh, how does that exist? I don't know how to make that work because I, I don't see it anywhere. And and in the same kind of vein, it's like all the people I see advocating for themselves and progressing because of it are doing it by stepping on other people or are doing it by mm-hmm. taking credit for their team's work, right? And so like not being able to see it, it's like, okay, I got to figure this out for myself. And that's a process to... Mm-hmm test and try and okay, how do I do this in a way that feels good and and that kind of thing. So I totally get that. It's like a, you just had to figure it out for yourself over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So as you were moving from really like this um, careerist to rebalancing your priorities and figuring out how to make it all work, was your conclusion then that like, I can't make this all work my way here? And, and that was a catalyst to you moving on or what did that look like? Some areas I was able to make work my way. So, you know, one other piece of realization I had, and I would, you know, encourage people to, who are, I'm a recovering workaholic. <laughs> I guess what I'd say. I still work incredibly hard, but you know, in my twenties, I was working 12, 16 hour days sometimes. Right. And I, I know, you know this, but you know, I was working full time and getting an MBA and, you know, I, I just, I was always signing up for, for so much. And so some of it was a bit of a realization on, I guess you could say it, those, those buckets of if I need to better and more authentically work, work my way, what is that? So define it. And I had redefined it in the shift of, you know, 20 something, no kids into, married with a, with a household to provide for and career ambitions still yet, you know, to achieve. So under that definition, what was in my control? What could I influence within the organization, you know, my team, the the broader company at large, the path that I could carve out for myself and what wasn't in control. It was just kind of a force greater beyond those first two buckets. And I was able to better work my way in the things I can control in that some of my belief that I had to work long hours was a little bit self-defined. I found mentors in the organization who had been able to chunk their work and, you know, place boundaries. And I try to practice some of those elements that they, that they had while they were able to place boundaries though, to the point of examples, you know, a lot of the coaching I got were from people who, you know, had a spouse who didn't work or, they didn't have kids. So they replaced boundaries versus kind of like personal interests. But my next challenge that was less in my control was the dual career with my husband. Again, coming out of grad school, uh, wanting to have his own career. That career was best served in markets that my company literally had almost no roles in, or if it had roles, didn't necessarily have a clear path to what could come after that, that would, you know, continue my advancement. And so I did have conversations with the the company about, you know, these long-term dual career plan goals that I had. And there was a willingness to accommodate the dual career needs, but there was also messaging about, you know, I was going to start to not check as many boxes quickly. <laughs> so I don't know. I, I, I ultimately had to face the reality that to support what my family needed market-wise, I wasn't going to be able to control it all through where I was at the time. Um, and so that, that was 
ultimately the final decision factor in, in my going to, you know, another opportunity that, that better teed myself and my husband up for our own career ambitions. When you're assessing, okay, can I succeed here and be authentic? I think it's important to get honest about what you can control and what is part of the culture or the design of an organization. And that can be different than what one particular manager or teammate believes or the way that they act. But what's actually part of the fabric of this company that probably isn't going to change? Jen had this belief that okay, if you take on more work, you deliver it with excellence, you stay humble, you keep your head down, you'll be noticed and rewarded. And what she learned was that wasn't the way that the system worked in this company and that there would be things that she needed to do in order to take on those new higher roles that would impact like this domino effect, all the other things in her life that she was trying to keep standing. I say this, and in the same breath, I also say that we often have a lot more leeway to ask for things than we think that we do. And uh, we talk about this in the next episode, um, where it's a special episode about leaving your job. In Jen's case, she had really driven to a place of clarity and transparency on what they or the company needed from her, and they weren't things she felt she wanted to do or could do. And ultimately, that's what led to her decision to leave. So we talked a bit about this process of you developing your own style of self-advocacy in a way that works for you. I'm curious, were there other things that you got feedback along the way or that you felt like you had to develop that you had to kind of navigate this process of figuring out how to do it. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. Like I mentioned, you know, life stage, I think creates these crucible check-ins on your authenticity, but for that first decade of my career, and even to an extent today, no matter what organization I'm in, who I'm working with, the feedback that's been most consistent in my career has been that I'm very cerebral in that you know, it's kind of like that Myers-Briggs dynamic of intuition versus judgment and thinking and feeling. I'm, I'm a heavy intellectualizer of things. And it doesn't mean I'm not empathetic, but it means that in business situations, you know, I was kind of the one in the room doing the game theory trees in my head. And when we were working on solutions, you know, the conversation in the room was about scenario A and B. And I was thinking about C, D, E, and F. And, you know, I found that F was the best idea. Um, and, you know, we try to bring groups along with that. And I realized that my most innate sense of thinking and processing and then my style of communicating what was in my head was not typical for the organization that I was working with. And when I would get that feedback, you know, my reaction, not to be dismissive, but I, I would think to myself, I, I don't know how to be any other way. <laughs> like I, you know, I, I would hear so consistently, you know, that I, it's very obvious to others that I am thinking of a bigger picture in my head, but then I need to guide them along the journey of when I'm trying to translate that for a group and particularly when I'm trying to sell them an idea and get them to adopt that idea. So I understood what the feedback was. I, didn't understand how to adapt to it because I didn't know how to be any other way. And so I, I find that everything I do starts with a little bit of, you know, trying to get anecdotes and gather anecdotes. So I would talk to mentors, you know, to understand more or just people who worked with me, like, you know, this is the feedback I've gotten. This is what I feel like is natural to me. Do you see me doing anything where you think that I could like reconcile these two things? You know, I wasn't necessarily trying to completely change who I was, but I was trying to understand how I could adapt it in a way where people would understand why I was the way I was. Um, and hopefully over time embrace it as a strength, right? So through that, through being able to hear the feedback, but also a little bit trying to stay true to myself, you know, knowing this was something that's a fundamental part of me. I've always been this way. <laughs> Being open to 
seeing myself through other people's eyes and understanding how I can have understanding, common understanding between without changing who I was. So what I was able to learn, fortunately, through that kind of whole exercise was that there were communication hacks that I could do to help people understand me better and then understand my behaviors better when I was in certain situations. So when I was meeting a new team and the getting to know you, I would always start to bring in elements like communication style, problem solving style, where I would have then the platform up front to say, you know, I, I've heard the feedback before and I'm very aware of the fact that I tend to do this and I tend to do that. So you will see me do this and do that. And I'm always open, you know, if something I'm, you know, is not clear what I'm conveying or there's more that we need to discuss to, to drive that mutual understanding, know that I am always happy to, to drive it. But this tends to be my style. Right. And then I would in kind say, you know, what is your style? And I found that just kind of sharing up front, this is how I am. This is then how you'll see me work, how you'll see me think and respond to things. And in kind showing that I want to understand that for someone else, because I intend to adapt where I can, but in other ways, I am who I am, that I found that that behavior was reciprocated in time. Uh, and so over time, I think people understand me quicker. <laughs> I think I can work with people more effectively faster. And the feedback still, you know, will come, but it, it, it's evolved over time as something I need to fix to something that people are just observing, uh, you know, about me. And that to me is a, is a big win, but I, I think it was important that I, you know, understood what could change and not again, but that equally for, for what, um, could change, you know, what could I expect people to change versus what would I, what would I need to change? And, and that helps me a tremendous amount. I will say one thing that I feel everyone should do. And I, I'm a little bit of your, um, kind of disciple on this is, you know, Enneagram, I wish I had had the benefit of an Enneagram when I was 25, instead of, you know, I was kind of probably in my early 30s when I did my first Enneagram exercise with my organization. That was hugely eye opening. Um, I am a six. And everyone I worked with at the time I did the exercise was a three or a seven or an eight. It explains so much <laughs> about yeah. one, why, <laughs> why feedback is so consistent. And then two, why I, why I was getting this feedback that it was fundamentally different, right? I, it's because I am fundamentally different. So Enneagram, I would say, is the navigation tool for self-understanding and then working with others that I think has been very game-changing on me, you know, also working my way in a new organization I come across faster. Like I'll introduce myself in addition to those two areas I mentioned before, communication, problem solving. I add in, you know, I'm an Enneagram six and this means this. And that um, that's really helped to understand, you know, that there are differences that can exist and then how different you are. You know, if I was a six in a world of, you know, threes and sevens and eights and sixes, you know, my adaptation of work in my way might've looked a little different because there were more examples like me, but this was literally in a room of 22 people. I was the only six. And then, and then I did the test again, five years later with a different team. And yet again, I was the only person in the room who was a six. So understanding that authenticity within yourself that sets you apart and then how much is it setting yourself apart? can be a really great insight to help you figure out how much you need to adapt or how much you need to have people understand where you're coming from so you can work with with them more authentically and successfully. Yeah, I I mean obviously thanks for the plug and <laughs> <laughs> I I think that is so important like what you said around it's really like giving people the context and communicating mm -hmm. those differences you were setting expectations with people so that they could understand, oh, this is the way that Jen thinks. Like we're evaluating three scenarios. She's already evaluated 10 and there might be something totally different that we haven't even thought of. And like, let's make space for that and not see it as a, a challenge to our ideas or a, what, what page is Jen on? We're all over here. You know, there's like all those judgments that happen in the moment or misunderstandings or miscommunications that can happen in, 
in the moments where people are on two different pages, right? So it's like, oh, I know that you're on that page. I know that you're on that page. And how do we bring that together? I think is so valuable. And there's really not enough of that going on. Obviously, I mean, great. That's, this is why I do what I do. But it's it's the recognition of the differences and the communication of the differences. And that's really all that needs to happen mm-hmm. so that you skip over all that other stuff, you doubting yourself or people questioning you or solutions not coming to fruition because you all just can't see eye to eye. So I love that. Okay, so I want to provide a little bit of context here. And I've talked about Enneagram before, but for anyone new to it, it's a framework for how we show up as humans and how we can recognize the underlying motivations behind our actions. It's sometimes grouped in with a myriad of personality assessments that are out there, but for me, it's a much deeper tool because of the motivation piece of it. Oftentimes in the corporate world, we see a lot of type threes and type eights. Type three is the achiever. They're all about driving towards goals and accomplishments, and they really desire approval or admiration or to kind of maintain a certain image. Type eight is the challenger. They're strong, direct, and they really desire control um, or autonomy. And these types are natural kind of take charge types. They're often the first and the loudest to speak up. And they often make up a disproportionate amount of the leadership level in companies, or at least that's the case from my experience, because they fit the standards and the norms best. And and this is where misunderstandings and conflict can happen, because when there's a dominant style in a workplace, and there certainly is in the American corporate workplace around these kind of like more assertive types, um, more quick to action, that tends to then be the norm and that then becomes what's valued. So when there's that dominant style, naturally groups have a tendency to see the outlier as wrong or not as good. That person doesn't speak up immediately or they don't have something to say and Um, Or maybe we think that they're not as strong of a leader because they didn't speak up right away. And instead of saying that, we could say, oh, they're going to bring more data into the solution or they're weighing out more scenarios to find the best way forward. So they don't have to answer immediately. But when they do, it's going to be so much better. The latter isn't happening quite as much. And so this is truly the focus of the work that I do with teams. It's understanding each other's way of working and finding ways to be more effective together. How could we see Jen's style, which is a type six, more security oriented, which makes her a great scenario planner and problem solver, but also sometimes comes across as negative or always calling out issues or problems. How can we make that an asset to a company and not a challenge? Or taking someone who's naturally really harmony-oriented and values driving common understanding and solutions that work for everyone in some way. This is the type nine. Instead of seeing them as indecisive or a weak leader because they won't take a stand right away, how can we see them as someone who is excellent at integrating lots of different perspectives and actually use that to drive better outcomes? Okay. I'm done with my rant. If you can't tell, I'm really passionate about this stuff. But this is really important that we tend to kind of merge into one way of doing things is the right way. And when we can take a step back, we can really recognize where different approaches to work are going to build better solutions. All right, back to the conversation. I want to fast forward a little bit to where you are today. And you're the chief brand officer at Chapinesque. You're doing some pretty innovative and disruptive things in the beauty and wellness space. So for someone who, as an Enneagram 6, can be risk-averse or security-oriented, you took this huge leap into a company that is in really early growth, or not in quick growth stages, less stable, clearly, than a Fortune 50 how did you muster up the courage to take this big leap? Yeah, it was uh, 
It was a leap. I, I think I surprised a lot of my friends, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So Japanesque is a very relative to my past worlds of working, you know, these Fortune 50 FTSE 100 type juggernauts. It's it's definitely small in that context, but it's incredibly dynamic. So the company has three brands all disrupting their respective category spaces. So we have Japanesque, which is the fastest growing tool brands in the US, you know, top three share in the beauty tool space, Makeup Racer, which pioneered sustainability in the makeup removal category, and Barefoot Scientist, which is a younger um, upstart brand, but really working to redefine foot care in a, in a wellness context, much like we've seen so much disruption in other parts of, you know, personal care and in a wellness mindset. That description is what initially hooked me into the organization because it took all of the things that I loved about my past jobs. Um, I love building things. I love fixing things. I love the redemption arc of, you know, started with a 10% decline when I took it and grew it, you know, to, to growth. Or, you know, started as a little seed of an idea and we turned it into an X million dollar business. So, the fundamental proposition of it was was there. I think it was the fact that it is its its own, you know, entity. It's it's a private equity owned company, which means on the one hand, there's a lot of mentality to, you know, invest for growth and drive scale. So you have the wind in your sails of, you know, a board that's extremely supportive of you trying, you know, bigger, bolder things to to drive growth. But on the other hand, you know, if you take the wrong move and you feel it's it's very exposed and, and volatile for the organization, there's a lot of burden of, you know, at, at my level as an officer in the company too, you know, the choices we make affect the, the, the whole organization versus, you know, a, a risk that you calculate as best you can, but ultimately ends up being a risk in a very large organization. You know, it's a dent, but it's like a paper cut, right? So... That definitely weighed on me as, well, this is, this is something different. You know, the, the work is fundamentally challenging, but the, the implications of success and failure is, is vastly different. And, um, since we just mentioned Enneagram, you know, me being a six <laughs> and liking security and plans and, and future, um, it definitely gave me pause. But what ultimately really tipped me into it was, the broader profile of the CEO that I'd be working with, the board that I'd be working with, the ambition of the company, the purpose of the brands was all in line with what I had defined as the authentic way I wanted to work going forward. So I have, you know, for one, you know, our, our private equity firm, the, the leaders of, of that firm have been on record saying that they almost go out of their way to look for female founded brands to bring into company portfolios because they believe so much in the power of business women um, in the CPG space. And so I, you know, and, and with that, I, I have felt a lot of support in that little, you know, demographic that I'm in as, you know, an ambitious career woman juggling family and children, but wanting to drive impact and have a large amount of responsibility. They, their, their fundamental value system supports what I want to balance in my life. And I, in the conversations about, you know, whether to go to this com company, that was a huge driver. I was still in a phase juggling needs with my husband, <laughs> just in, in figuring out if I was going to be reconciled, able to reconcile my personal as a professional, you know, they, they were highly engaged in that conversation, very transparent. And I found very true to everything that they said. So that was, that was a big benefit, just that mentality of, of the leaders that I would be working with. And then in my style, you know, like we just talked about with the way that I've grown a habit of saying, this is who I am. This is how I communicate. This is how I problem solve in the conversations about, you know, was it a mutual fit for me to join the company? I talked through all those things. This is my style. This is, you know, based on what you're telling me are the company's challenges. This is the type of way that I would look to tackle those things. And, you know, I want to make sure that this is a fit, you know, or are you, are you comfortable with what I'm saying my approach is going to be? And are you comfortable with what I'm saying is important to me in, in a business context? 
I also had very upfront conversations about my career ambitions. And I think in all that way, just having the right upfront conversation, not in a stubborn, like, this is who I am and it's not changing, but like, this is, this is who I am. This is how I work. This is why I think it's a value, but I want to make sure you think it's a value too. Yeah. Yeah. I, I learned that by setting that tone in the conversation, you know, it really helped me feel good about coming into this company. And, um, I've been there a little less than two years now, but I absolutely love it. It's, it's everything I loved in my past roles. Still with a lot of values I enjoyed from prior companies I worked with. You know, I, I left my companies, you know, the past companies I worked for still with high opinions of, of those companies. You know, they, I learned a ton. I met great leaders and it was nice to know that some of those things that I, you know, worried I would miss most, I, I still get in this role. But now with a little bit more of a level set um, where I, I feel very much on the same page with the values and the understanding of ways of working with the board, the officers in the company, um, and even the broader organization culture. You know, when I did my here's who I am to my own team, you know, I I took that same exercise, but in the inverse, right? Here's who I am. Here's how I work. I'd love to know, you know, who you are and how you work. And it's it's just been a great high EQ environment, high inclusive environment in terms of working styles and, and working perspectives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how has that enabled you to show up as the leader that you want to be? What what does your leadership style look like now and how have you been able to really step into that? I'm a very servant leader. Probably probably it's from my PNG upbringing, which had that as, you know, uh, a big slogan as you came in as a new hire. And by that, I mean, I'm not leading for my own satisfaction. I'm leading under a broader mission for the company and I am leading to develop and grow my team for the sake of, you know, they're being able to execute the business, but also they're being able to develop their own careers. I, I have a very, you know, broad range of people in my organization, but I, I have a, a very ambitious contingent um, where I can see myself, you know, back in my 20s, um, wanting the same coaching. And as a smaller organization, you know, when they look for mentors, they they have a, you know, it's a flatter structure. So they have a smaller bench of who to go to. And so I really try to make myself be as available to those individuals as, as much as I can within the walls of our company. I, from day one, set those, you know, personal boundaries. I am East Coast space. My company is West Coast space. That was another upfront conversation to say, you know, I, the only way I can make this work is with some core hours. I'm not going to regularly be available to have a meeting at 8 p.m. Eastern at the end of a Pacific day. And what that actually led to was me authentically working out guardrails that ended up being more productive than I've ever had in my in my career, frankly. I've gotten smarter about chunking work, zoning meetings with, you know, people in this geography versus that geography, where I'm not working both in East Coast and, and Pacific Coast Day. That's been a big personal win for me because my past self would have wanted the guardrails, but felt this need to like accommodate others and, and kind of adapt myself a hundred percent into their schedule. And and I've learned over time to build the habit of, of the meeting halfway. And they in turn, you know, are never disrupted by me on East coast, you know, time, you know, before they even get into the office, I don't want them to be inundated with 10 emails that came across at five in the morning, their time. So it, it's a two-way street, I've learned, but I've, I've been able to kind of set those principles better up front um, coming to the organization new. So as we wrap up here, I'm curious, what's next for you as you navigate work and life? Well, I'm done with kids. <laughs> so just, just the three that we have. <laughs> done, done having them, uh, not raising yeah, them, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> I I mean, I still I still have ambitions in my own career. I, I'd love to be the leader of a company um, someday. So the work that I try to do is not just, you know, loving the work in and of itself, but having the work stretch me and push me so that my skill mm-hmm. set's more broader for things. I guess I'm still always planning for having the most opportunities available based on, you know, what I do in the near term. This company has been great for that because with fewer layers, um, the buck stops with me on more things. And 
yeah, I mean, hopefully I'll keep the C to my <laughs> title uh, and and get the CEO spot someday. That's definitely um, an ambition I have. But in the near term, I'm just enjoying the work I'm doing and focused on the learning and the skill building that I need to do so that, you know, I, I can meet that moment when I when I see it coming my way. And then I guess the last thing is, uh, you know, like having this conversation today and the journey I've been on and realizing that there aren't a lot of examples that I had grown up in my career seeing, just trying to put myself out there as an example for others to learn from good and bad. I didn't make every move correctly or timely. Um, some I did, but I think sharing it for all that it is so that those with similar challenges behind me can have a faster learning curve. I've been focused on that both professionally in my work environment, as I mentioned, and then, you know, kind of outside of work hours, just offering that perspective to others. Yeah, I love that. That's a great note to end on. Um, how can we share our stories and the things that we've learned and the ways that we've grown along the way to help other people that are navigating similar challenges or might find something insightful from that. So, and that is exactly why I started this podcast. So thank you so much for, for being on, for sharing your own journey. And I'm excited to see where you go. Who knows? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But I, I love being on and, and the, the conversations that you're sparking are really meaningful. And, um, I'm very excited that the current generation of, you know, people navigating the curse have the benefit of, of content like this. I, I think we could have benefited from it um, <laughs> in many times in our past. So it's, it's great to have this forum. Okay. So as we wrap up this conversation, we talked a lot about recalibrating life and career goals as our circumstances change. And this is not only about changes like getting married or having kids. As you change and evolve as a human, your values change, your energy changes, your goals are inherently going to change with some of that. So as you're assessing your goals, I would encourage you to say, what do I want and why do I want it? What am I going to get when I get there? What's the why behind the goal? Is it power? Is it status? All these extrinsic things, these external things can often be our why. But there could be internal whys that are important for you to explore and evaluate. And then next I would say, how do I want to feel when I get there? When I get to this point, what is that going to to do for me in terms of how I show up, what I'm feeling. And then the last question that I would ask is, what will it enable me to do or not do? Maybe there's some insight in that for you in the sense of, I want this job so I make more money. And that money will liberate me from some of these burdens or responsibilities or will enable me to hire Someone to clean my house, as an example, and that will free up my time so that I can do other things that are important to me. And so sometimes those external extrinsic things will lead to a deeper internal thing, but it's really important to really flush that out and and think through that. So just going back through the questions one more time, what do I want? Why do I want it? How do I want to feel when I get there? And what will it enable me to do or not do? In the episode, we also talked about interviewing and knowing how you work best and incorporating that fully into the process of looking for a new job. I think if more of us could articulate, hey, this is my work style and it allows me to contribute and deliver X, Y, Z, how does that land with the way that the company gets work done? I think we could better assess which companies will leverage that and which ones might not be a great fit. This knowing yourself really well can be done in so many ways. Enneagram is just one of them. But if you want to learn more about that particular framework, we'll put some resources in the show notes. And then last, we talked about how to decide when the math just isn't mathing, when to leave a company because certain things are outside of your control. Next week, we have a special episode coming up that's all about 
quitting your job. So that's going to be an amazing resource if you're in this position or if you're considering it. It's all about how to decide if you should quit a job. What are the questions to ask yourself and how to assess the situation? So hopefully that will feel like a great set of information or some reflections or some things to consider. Thanks so much for listening to Working Your Way. Make sure to follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. You can also check out all of our episodes, show notes, additional resources, and more at selfatwork.com forward slash podcast.